Hi, this is Jason Fuller, and this is Phenomenal Pod. Is the card game Euchre something in your area? I know it's a huge Midwest thing. Listen, it might be, but I don't have friends, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you need more than one person to play it? Is it like solitaire? Can I do it by myself? <laughs> well, it's a partner card game. And yeah. You know, oh, so you I, I know nothing about it then. Yeah. And well, I'm bad with it because I'm bad with numbers and you have to be able to count. Wait, weren't you an accountant? Yeah, I know. It was problematic. But you get to a certain point where you score enough points where they say, you're in the barn. And then people like, they tie their hands together with their thumbs uh-huh. out, and then the partner pulls on the thumbs like it's a cow like udder. I think you're this is definitely barn. a Midwest game. Is it played with just regular cards or a special deck of yeah. cards? Yeah. Oh, oh, you so get it's... two decks of cards. You get two decks of cards. So here's my confusion. is it The rules are the opposite of spades, which is, I think spades is more of an East Coast game. I think spades have been around for a while. I also don't know how to play that. I just know it exists. Euchre, I don't believe. I think that's made up for just Midwest U.S. Yeah. people. Okay. Well, all right. Homework for the audience. I want to know what your regional card games are. Europe, yes. I'm looking at you. What, what uh, games do you play? <laughs> Germany, what are your card games? South America, Brazil, what are your card games? France, card games. But this is not Euchre pod. What is this, Stacy? Hold on. Hi, I'm Stacy Case, and I'm Joe Daly, and this is FinOps Pod. This is FinOps Pod. I'm much better at FinOps than I am at Euchre. <sighs> Enough about the Euchre. I've never even heard of it. I don't think it exists. Okay, Joe, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. I I miss doing these. I really look forward to when we get together and record ourselves talking and then are able to share out FinOps knowledge with the rest of the world. That's right. Fortunately, that FinOps knowledge does not come from you or I. It's from professionals that are subject matter experts. That's right. Because otherwise, I just talk about random card games. And we have a longtime expert in this field. For today's episode yeah two long times yeah jason fuller from here technologies interviewed by our own mike fuller from finops foundation and what are they talking about so both jason and mike are among the first people i met in this industry and they've been doing this a super long time here technologies has been in the cloud space and jason doing the finops role way long before finops was a word I believe he was talking about how he's been doing this for 10 years now, which is a super long time. And he's seen a lot of things. And he's a very thoughtful person who's developed opinions and thoughts. And they're all really interesting and thought-provoking. And a lot of it, as I was recording the interview and editing the interview, there's a lot of things like his expertise and experience are being echoed in a lot of the conversations I'm hearing in our recent community calls, which are new events that we host. And it's one of those things where, you know, I smile because the connectiveness that we all have in experience and why we all come together as a community is because 
you could be doing this 10 years. You could just be starting now, but you're facing the same sort of problems. Yeah, between both Jason and Mike, there's definitely a lot of experience with FinOps in their experiences and what they've both seen and have done. Is there something that we should be expecting specifically with this call? What do you got for me, Joe? There were two points that really stood out for me. One was how he talks about maturing FinOps capabilities. Mm -hmm. And we always think about like, okay, we start off and then we get really mature and we focus on being really mature. But his point was the conversations you have because you get really mature, you can't have unless you do the immature capability really well. So you always have to go back and make sure you're doing that step one really well. Um, otherwise it puts all your maturity at risk. So it's not mm -hmm. like you stop doing the immature thing. And the other thing going on that came up in the West community call is architectures and how they're created at a certain point in time and not always in the way the technologies are meant to be used. So looking back and trying to help application teams and update their architectures or mo modernize their architectures can be really hard. It's like trying to work on an old house where someone did their own electrical wiring and wires are crossed, which related very much to my experience in the past and many people's experiences. Okay. Let's let the fine listeners of this podcast stop listening to us ramble and actually listen to Mike and Jason have pretty great, meaningful conversations around the FinOps. That's right, FinOptonaut. Enjoy your walk, hike, or drive to the soothing sounds of Mike Fuller interviewing Jason Fuller. It's great to have you here, Jason. We go way back to the original FinOps Foundation board, right? For everyone, how did you start and what was your path to get to where you are now within FinOps? I actually get this question all the time. In fact, I was meeting with a vendor today and they said, tell us where it all began. And I wish it was some magical conscious decision, but to be honest, it was a bit like tripping into anything. Doing good technology management requires budget compliance. I mean, Business 101, supply and demand. Um, I've always had a, an interest in that back to the school days. FinOps just uh, somewhat made sense as we saw the adoption of cloud. We see the adoption of open source, including things like open billing, open telemetry, open API, all the way back to Linux, open operating systems. Naturally, business uh, gets lost in some of the tech, some of the geek speak. And I think FinOps for me has always been about translating your business problems into technical solutions, that's why technology exists, then the reverse or the counter or the, as Amazon says, the flywheel, is that you need to translate the technology's financials into business speak. And so that's been at a very high level, my goal for the last 12 years of my career is to sit with teams that have highly technical problems that they are solving using all of this awesome stuff we have access to today and make sure that when they're spending the money from the company, that it isn't being run over. That's been a good ride. And so I guess like digging a little bit in to your actual FinOps practice here, how has it been working for you? Yeah, I think from the most recent to maybe some we've thought we've tackled and, and constantly pop back up. When you build things, whether you're Google or Amazon or Microsoft or you know, IBM, 
you're handing really intelligent people the tools to do a job, every algorithm, every desired business outcome that you use this technology, the software industry to solve, um, it, it, it has a creative side to it. I have a computer science degree, so there's the word science there. There's, there's math, right? I like to tell my teenager it's math. Um, but it, it, it doesn't mean that it's math equals standards. And so our, our biggest challenge that we run into is, you know, we crack open an auto-scaling group and we try to help the team get to a desired instance count that matches with their budget. And we find out that an entire architecture is built all in one auto-scaling group or vice versa. Too many auto-scaling groups all used for self-healing purposes. And you try to figure out the why um, on an application and what you, you know, generally get back to is the builder said so when we built the house. And building at different time periods in the technology journey also creates different capabilities. So you get stuck in EC2, and then you get stuck in Kubernetes, and then you get stuck out in Lambda, and then you bring it back to Kubernetes or bring it back to EC2. And although we all wish that as software and applications could synchronize and globally spread, it is it is generally a time and I don't want to say an art because there is science to it, but that builder is building for a purpose at that time, and that purpose may change. And it's really hard at an enterprise level to keep all the applications up to n minus one and constantly moving. It's very expensive as well. And so oftentimes our challenges in FinOps come from another asset that we have to now dig in with the application team and figure out and try to fix the infrastructure as best you can. But it's really just a big hodgepodge of DIY when you're in a high-tech company like ours, because we're not copying most things we're leading. It's like any DIY project, you, you run into <laughs> wires crossed and you have to figure out how to uncross them. Do you think that without your FinOps practice, you would struggle, I guess, as an organization? Is FinOps unlocking the ability for this to be a success for your org? Yeah, we're creating, I'd say, our own, I don't want to say purpose, but it's the requirements that they're now using against the FinOps organization to continue to advance are all things that didn't exist before the FinOps organization, if that makes sense. For example, we use a, a lot of tooling to help with allocation of costs out of an Amazon account or out of an Azure tenant. And these things were immature before FinOps. And it's like any FinOps program, with, you know, the crawl, walk, run, right? When you're crawling, it's very difficult to see what a run looks like. But once you're running, you sometimes have to remember that the crawling stage is still your core reason for being. So could we allocate down to the second charges for a node group or some some dimension on top of my application platform without first understanding how to break apart the cost utilization port or the Azure billing report? No, right? You have to start there. And so because we solved that problem seven years ago, longer, 10 years ago, that becomes the reason why you can now have debates over whether somebody's microcontainer is costing me more money or you more money and what's driving the demand and increase and scaling. And we're having these debates now of a very dynamic business with very big dollar amounts tied to it, which you'd still be back talking about, is that my Amazon account or your Amazon account? Have we not, from FinOps maturity point of view, figured out some of those core things? So we look at it as a tree. These branches and leaves that we debate on all day, every day at this point, don't happen if the trunk 
didn't grow in the very beginning. So I, I do, we do look back. We are very retrospective in that way and try to figure out where can we better the trunk? Is there a better tool to help with the first step in, in the allocation? And now we're five generations of allocations. It comes in on the account, then goes to the shared groups, then it goes to the namespaces, then it goes to the pipelines in the namespaces. So we can, in our P&L, really get to this customer to this business is costing the company this much money. But it all starts with, can I rationalize a curve file? And of course, as anyone in the cloud industry knows, the business of cloud doesn't stop innovating their own billing e-commerce and commerce platforms, right? So it's a curve file. It used to not be. It was a it was the detailed billing report before it was the curve file. Okay. It was nothing before it was that. I was using open source Firefox tools too, right? Before CloudWatch. So you got to keep both sides balanced, right? The interior use cases and make sure they're all quality and going smoothly and the exterior vendor management of changes they want to throw at you, whether it's SaaS companies or cloud companies. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of what you're talking about is this collaboration and partnership with the engineering groups. And I guess wanting to dig into the impact of the engineering groups in this conversation, effectively, my experience is that DevOps, especially DevOps in cloud, is very uh, freeing for innovation and creativity. Like you say, with the sort of is it art versus science, there's a lot of ways that they can come up with new painted pictures of architectures and solutions. But it also means that you could end up with a lot of different pictures and paintings across your organization if you just leave it unchecked. And so I'd love to get your opinion on that, that freedom of creativity and innovation for engineers and then how you go about managing how much restriction or guardrails you put in place. Yeah, I think like any technology, there's always the chance that a disruption coming from whether it's a new coding language that does it better than the old coding language, or whether it's efficiencies of this language versus that language, being purpose-driven as we are here, looking at the opportunities in our marketplace, understanding our customers and their demands, driving the industry as a leader, it forces you to avoid standards while also trying to run a business, right? Which, which is a very difficult place to be because you want to be fast, which says sometimes it's not done That's in an MVP state, so you're going to do what you need to do. But the only thing that we know that's constant is time. And the only real other alternative kind of theory behind that whole kind of time thing is we only have so many people and there's always something else to do. And so FinOps oftentimes, I like to say, gets into the forced ranking of features and products, enhancements based on customer and market demands, followed by securing of those things, then followed by FinOps. The FinOps team, of course, would like to think that it's, you don't have a business if you don't have FinOps, and then you, you don't have a business if you don't have features and security. And then security's got their own order, right? And so you're constantly negotiating this, this pillared approach. But I think f- from our point of view, the cloud innovation, if you're not moving fast with an Amazon or an Azure or Oracle or Google, then you're not taking advantage of the innovation and the investment they've made. I think the the turn here in 2023 is just there's so many more options that it says to your engineer who's moving fast, I need to pick what accomplishes my goal, my requirement, my need, and I need to do it with the team that I have. So if it's a lot of developers who do X, spinning up a development team of a new language or a new type or new architecture in a software architecture sense, that engineering takes too much time. So 
You're trying to invent with what you have. And then you have influencers like FinOps and DevOps and sustainability and these things that start to put pressure. And then in the end, hopefully a diamond comes out the other side. So I guess double clicking on that a little bit is you have these different motivations or priorities within across the different groups and decisions being made based on different influences coming into the decision pipeline. How much do you think is FinOps in your organization getting involved in that conversation and helping influence? And then how much are you spending time aligning on those different persona group motivations? I think we're deeply involved in the conversation. So strategically, FinOps is in the conversation, both from a a CTO's organization and a CFO's organization. So it's a bridge between those two things to try to explain opportunities to both. Ultimately, what we find is the most successful cocktail to mix up is that you've got the finance people understanding what our current plan is, which is, again, something at most companies that's approved at a very high level of how much investment are you going to have, what's the cost, what's the EBITDA of the company. And you don't generally want to come off plan because of a, a, a bad decision in the cloud, spending too much on the weekend or something like this. So they always are focused on what's our plan and how can we achieve our plan and And FinOps is seen very much as a a safety net and a governor to that. So if we can, for example, we went in and shifted a a screensaver technology into play this year. So if you went ahead and you enable hibernation at AWS so that you can read your state from EC2 into EBS, we'll watch your CPU memory. And when you go under 3% for three hours, we'll go ahead and hibernate. We'll trigger the hibernate API and we'll let it hibernate for you. Then you come back and you take off hibernation. For a lot of teams, that work would be easy to do, but at a scale broadly of what we have, we were able to put that in. And what it does for us is is nothing's left on that shouldn't be left on in our R&D environments, right? Now we're moving up the stack, up our SDLC towards production. Maybe nothing in our testing, maybe nothing in our beta testing, and then our gamma testing, and then these customer integration testing sites. But it enables finance to have confidence in the plan which then lets them invest any additional savings or any additional variable cost towards moonshot projects or real contingencies that they needed to take up or shoring up quality or other things that they maybe are used to holding on to because cloud can be variable and dangerous. So they hold a lot of extra cash and they don't let it out. And so actually can be an accelerant in the financial side of the, the equation. On the tech side, what we get most of the discussion is, look, I just told the CFO all this money is available, but I need you, technology engineering team X, to verify and commit. And so it isn't just so much to say, can your Java version work with Graviton? Yes, no. That's a very easy you know, activity. In fact, there's a tool out there that'll do it for you, open source. But are you going to dedicate the next two sprints to shifting your application onto the ARM architecture and actually achieving Graviton? When will those two sprints happen? October, January, July. And then that helps, again, build the savings confidence to go back to finance and say, okay, we said it was a million. We've now verified that down. It's 900,000, but it's happening on the 15th of the month. And so our conversations strategically help to bridge where there normally is a lot of, of enterprise noise and organizational communication. It's impossible to have the middle engineers and the middle financial people constantly talking to each other, or they would never close the month or complete the next sprint. And leaders generally 
find it difficult to negotiate these because they both have their strategic primary important initiatives that they're trying to achieve independently. So FinOps really acts as that glue and more at at here technologies where the operator plugging in call one to call two in that old operator model. But we're also the data validation team as well. So we are power users of all the tools. We understand all of the data complexities of both sides of that equation. And we're working with engineers to make sure that what we're seeing is real. And then what finance is showing back to the engineers is real. And so there's a, there's a pretty good closed circle communication that we, we enable at here technologies. So as someone who's contributed a lot to the foundation's assets over the years, but now I guess in my role at the foundation as staff, someone who's really keen to make sure that what resources that we're making available to you, the community is helpful. I'd love to hear how is the FinOps framework helping guide your FinOps team or enabling your FinOps practice? It's, it's a question we ask of the people we engage at the FinOps Foundation all the time. And so I know Kyle and Ashley work with us often, and, and they hear me say it all the time. It, it's very important for the foundation to continue to show that the value you provide our community in general is something that I could not achieve without you. And oftentimes, we get into the build-buy discussion internally, right? Can I go buy this from a tool vendor? Can I build it myself? And as an innovative company, we generally try to build it first, figure out what it is, and then we go to buy it later. The kind of true business value that the FinOps Foundation has shown us over our relationship is that there's something less quantifiable around having a persona-based training program or having an experienced network outsider look in. And having worked with the big consulting firms for my whole career, they're hiring ex-practitioners, they're hiring ex-cloud vendors, they're bringing everybody they can to bolster their kind of resume to say, we have folks you work for us who used to work at Amazon, or we have folks that work for us that are just off the Google staffing logs. Those are all fine and good. But until you've actually lived in the pressure of a financial year with a technology stack running on a cloud, you know, and have to live the FinOps life, it's very difficult to, I think, um, replicate what FinOps Foundation can do for the community. It's accelerating conversation. It's accelerating internal meetings. It's building training modules with my learning campus. It's allowing my program managers to call for help directly to the foundation, which my team would not be able to provide because we're busy engineering and developing governance tools to support other product teams that are busy building features and functions so they don't have to build the governance tools. So it's it becomes a very good relationship in that way so that the standards of what is happening in the community are also being fed back in. We don't have to go to a big engagement that oftentimes comes with contingencies with, yeah, we'll save you money, you pay us a percentage. That's generally what your consultory industry will do. We're feeding into the foundation and we're receiving back from the foundation valuable insights to how other companies are operating cloud, but also taking that into a formed training and certification program builds that that gamification level that I could not produce in the company. I could force everybody to go to Amazon training or Azure training or other training. But what I can't do is say, you're an engineer, an independent of what technology we choose to buy at the sourcing level for the company. Here's what you need to be focusing on when you're looking at your cloud spend or your cost of running your application. And so in that way, FinOps Foundation is extremely valuable because I think the people are the most valuable part of any equation that we ever do. Where's FinOps going for you, for, for your organization, and I guess for you, you personally? 
for me personally, I, I'm looking at the Gen AI. I'm looking at what's happening there. I'm seeing Bedrock. I'm seeing Azure Open AI. I'm seeing some of the, like any hype cycle, there's just everything can be done with this type model going on right now. But just like what we're seeing in the cloud industry over the last 10 years, there's going to be a curve. Um, I imagine that things like content development, documentation, um, activities, even code quality and, and coding itself can start to take on uh, an automated role. And so once you start to incorporate that and you think of it, not just from the LLM examples, but some of the other um, large models that are out there for other use cases, and you start having a conversation now with Gen AI and incorporate a FinOps blend to it, you naturally see the software industry having to change the way we do things. It, it's not about the faster, smaller, more precise. It's about the predictive, the adaptive. And for me personally, I'm going to be taking a lot of my FinOps and saying, yeah, if companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Meta are going to start putting this out, we're going to see massive spikes in inflated salaries, which bring massive spikes in inflated. I, I don't know how much you guys have looked at some, like an architecture for Bedrock, but you're running on the P5 massive NVIDIA boxes. These are expensive. So ultimately, you have to get the value out that you're putting in. And so FinOps has a real role to play there to say, let's define the value you're putting in and let's also now prove the value coming out. For us as a company, I think Your Technologies continues the journey that we've been on, which is to enhance our financial visibility and transparency to such a level that product teams can make product decisions with financial confidence and trust. And so I know when the wind is blowing and my API calls are going through the roof, that I've built a sustainable architecture, but I've also built a sustainable FinOps that finance can be prepared for that new forecast based on business growth. Because ultimately, I know that lots of companies like to stay steady on cloud and like it should be flat or always looking to go down. Truth is, if you're running in a transactional software business like much of us out there in the FinOps world, if you're growing your business, then you're growing your cloud costs. That's the beauty of what the cloud industry has created. So if you're not growing your cloud costs in a sustainable way, then your business can't be growing at the leaps and bounds in the, in the hockey sticks that you know we all see in software happening. So. Yeah, there's very much like a trust in the, from the business that they know where the, when it goes up and to the right, as it always seems to do, that it's going up into the right with value for the organization. I think every long-term practitioner who's had a practice going for quite a while always looks at the things they could improve. Even when, if you could pause for a moment, look back at all the great things you have achieved, there's always things that you would love to, to fix or even make that little bit better just because you can see what it will unlock for the organization in, in trust and, and verification. But the AI ML story is very much in the early days. Lots of people super keen to see how that goes. And yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see which side of the coin, I guess, lands first is the how much is AIML helping FinOps and how much is FinOps helping the AIML grow in the organization. And yes, great. Thanks for coming in, chatting with me. It's, it's always great to unlock your brain and share it with the community. Uh, I appreciate you guys very much and it's always good to catch up. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Melanie Edwards, FinOps Ambassador and Associate Director of FinOps at Carrier. I just want to say that I would be Stacy Euchre's partner anytime. Stacy, next time you're in the Midwest, I'll show you the ropes. Big thanks goes out to Jason Fuller and Mike Fuller for their conversation. Jason and Mike brought up some interesting ideas about FinOps maturity. And the experience of looking back at older application architectures definitely resonated. It's always great to hear from folks who have been in this industry a long time. It feels good to know that you can have a long career in this space. Thank you to Stacy Case and Joe Daly for kicking off this episode and putting it all together for us. If you aren't part of the FinOps Foundation community, go to finops.org and click join the community. While you are there, check out all the community resources that make up the FinOps framework, as well as community events and working groups. Until next time, keep on FinOpsing.